Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're doing journalism. If you like, almost the nerve endings of pop culture. Without journalism, how could we know about things? But there is a history of journalism. Some of it is extremely noble, and some of it is very dark. Some of it is still ongoing, and there's even a threat to journalism going on today. So there's so much to get into on this one. And this is one of these ones where it spreads across continents. It deals with so many different topics and areas, and it might indeed be older than you think. Without further ado, shall we say, what is a journalist? Basically, they are a reporter, a reporter of certain factual information that they have witnessed or have eyewitness accounts of. Now, why isn't a historical chronicle considered journalism? Because part of it is actually meant to be mass-produced and is meant to be about now. So take, for example, the Jester Francorum. So what's that, says Jem? This is basically a chronicle written by an anonymous crusader who describes the First Crusade. It is an eyewitness account. It's a fascinating look at what happened as this French knight marched across Europe and then on into the Middle East, fighting in pivotal battles and sort of telling it, at least from their perspective, like it was. It is an invaluable asset to understand the First Crusade in the very end of the 11th century. Is that journalism? No, because it was written down once and it's to preserve events that clearly had happened years before. And while it's history, it's not exactly journalism. For journalism to really take place, there is something else that has to happen. And that is the introduction of the printing press. Now, let's not get too complicated about this. Yes, China invented printing first, but China also had this very powerful state body that stopped things from being like it is and more like the way the emperor wants it to be. So with that regards, while China did have some what could be considered proto-newspapers, they're not really what we would consider today something like that. The second thing that has to happen for journalism to really work is a mass audience. Going back to the Jester Francorum, it's 
by a French knight who presumably dictated to a priest, a monk, who then wrote it down in not French, but Latin, because that was quite literally the lingua franca of that medieval era. So it had the advantage of being able to be read almost anywhere in Europe, but on the downside, hardly anybody could read. Indeed, much of the aristocracy was illiterate at that time. So we need to have improved education. Now, to sort of fast forward from the times of the First Crusade, or I think printing was largely considered in the first millennium AD in China. That's where it first started. Then, of course, we've got the Gutenberg Bible. That's the first printed publication in Europe. That's in the 1400s. But again, we're reprinting the Bible. It's not news, as it were. <laughs> if Hey, if it's the good news that Jesus Christ is your saviour, I hear you, but hopefully take that that's not the same thing as the news at 10 in an evening. Instead, and please excuse me with this, the first generally considered widely distributed European newspaper was called Relation alla Fernmannen und Gedenken Würdigen. Best you're going to get out of me by Johann Carolus in Strasbourg, which is one of those places that was fought over between the Germans and French for absolutely centuries. So, yeah, Strasbourg is just where I'm going to say it is. And 1605 is when it came out. So to give you an idea, Queen Elizabeth I of England had died only a couple of years earlier. This is only at the very beginning of the unification of the crowns in England and Scotland, and yet it was going to be just over a century before the actual acts of union to formally politically unify those two countries. So that's pretty old. However, it doesn't exist anymore. But not exactly that far off it, we have the oldest newspaper that is still being produced today. And that is the Gazeta de Mantova, which is from 1664. And I think you can guess from my, again, terrible accent, that that is Italian. And it still exists to this day. But while these things were sort of coming out in the 1600s, their readership would have been minuscule. First of all, there's the printing, which would have been relatively expensive. How many people can read in the 1600s? And then... Well, distribution was going to be by cart and not a lot else. So really, we're at the point of pamphlets being handed around. And look, in the 1600s, sort of like in between Johann's newspaper, the first one, and the Italian one, we've got the Thirty Years' War. And in that, there were loads of pamphlets being produced. Indeed, shortly after that, you've got the English Civil War. At the end of it, I should say, you've got the English Civil War. What, what was then described that other people call it other things today. But this is kind of like the first series of conflicts where there was mass production of pamphlets to spread propaganda. It's basically what we're talking about. I don't think we can call any of those pamphlets journalism. Whereas with the Gazetta... 1664, the point was to fill it full of news. We are into journalism by there, and I'm going to leap forwards 120-odd years to the year 1785, which is the launch of The Times, the newspaper that's still running today. Gazetta beats it by more than a century, 
but almost nobody's heard of the Gazetta. Whereas if you say the Times of London, although obviously it's a national newspaper, that's something that still holds water today. It's still a big deal to be reviewed, written about in the Times. And for the record, I have had about a dozen books come out and I have never once had them. I've had them reviewed in various history magazines. Thank you very much for your support, particularly all about history and a bit from BBC History magazine as well. Much appreciated, guys. But they just don't have the cachet or indeed the general circulation of something like The Times. And they've never written about me. Not bitter about that at all. I get it. I'm small fry. And that's the thing. You know, you've got to be big. You've got to be impressive. You made it to have been written about in the Times, even if they only give you a two-star review. At least they're reviewing you. You're important enough for people to be nasty to you. But that's 1785. And obviously, it was very much a cottage industry then. But to give you an idea of the circulations over a century, by 1810, its daily circulation was about 5,000. And we are talking about a newspaper that was printed basically the weekdays, not on the weekends. So 5,000. By 1910, that number had shot up to 45,000. So that is an absolutely gigantic, that's a nine-time improvement over a hundred years. So basically, it's doubling its circulation every 10 years, give or take. That's, you know, really impressive. And the Times was by no means the most popular newspaper. It was the one read by the people with power. It was the one that, again, people would want to be seen in. But by 1910, there were other types of newspapers coming out that were being guided towards the average working man. And a sort of typical scene in the first half of the 20th century would be the morning where somebody would pick up a newspaper and everybody had to leave the patriarch, the dad alone, as they sat there eating breakfast whilst consuming the newspaper, which probably had news as recent as yesterday, which before the internet, I mean, this is the thing, in the modern world, we're getting live updates from across the world telling us things. When people say this was the information superhighway of its time, yeah, newspapers were. In fact, basically the internet has aped and mimicked the style of news for the purposes of being able to present news in sometimes a very skewed way online. So I'm talking about newspapers, 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 and yet, Jem, this is journalism. But we haven't come to any other way for the journalists to get their names out yet. I'm going to sort of throw out there, if we think 1785 is old for the Times of London, well, the New York Post was started in 1801, so only 16 years later, and America is a lot younger country than England, 1801 by, of course, Alexander Hamilton. And what's interesting is, in the New York Post, we start seeing some of the things that are problems today. Basically, it was Hamilton's newspaper. So what did he do? He used it, in essence, as a political weapon to basically write sometimes anonymous, scathing commentaries about his nemesis or other people that he didn't like. He could rail against the government, and there was no restrictions to this. When people talk about how biased modern news is, have a look at some of the early stuff. It was really the Wild West before the Wild West even existed. However, with that in mind, it is also worth pointing out that, yeah, it can be a garbage fire today with some areas of journalism. To give you an idea of how established newspapers were by the 1800s, the early 
1800s, I have a quote from Napoleon, which is, four hostile newspapers are more to be feared than a thousand bayonets. So this is a man who understood the power of the printed press and also the power of PR, public relations. No longer were you just getting sermons out of the pulpit telling the locals what to think. More and more people were able to get this alternative view of information and, you know, things were going to be skewed. Obviously, the Times of London was not going to write favourably about the French Revolution, or indeed Napoleon either. But at the same time, Napoleon, as a military dictator, could control the newspapers of France. It's kind of counterintuitive that in the 17 and 1800s, France, which you tend to see as quite sort of more egalitarian, you know, French Revolution, all that kind of stuff, you would assume that their press would have been more free than somewhere like England's or Britain's. But actually, it was in reality the other way round, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense in your gut, but them's the facts, people. We're seeing this sort of slow evolution here. The, the next sort of notable evolution that I'm going to jump in here and talk about one of the most noble forms of war correspondence sing, sing, ning, ning. That's easy for you to say. Is William Howard Russell. William Howard Russell was Irish and he wrote for the Times. And he started to go to war zones, which was a very risky thing, obviously, to do. And by the 1850s, he was there for nearly two years in the Crimean Peninsula, writing about what has become known as the Crimean War, but was called at that point the Russia War, which makes sense because some of it was happening in the Caucasus, and some of it was happening in the Baltic, and a little bit of it was even happening in the North Pacific. So all those things aren't anywhere particularly near the Crimean Peninsula, but a lot of the land battles and most of the pivotal ones happened on the Crimean Peninsula. And so William Howard Russell is on the very edges of this, and he eventually becomes obsolete by other people. But he is the first person to have photographs taken on the front and then writing basically a letter and being able to get that within the week. So if he took the photo and wrote the article Monday, it could just about be out there on the Times newspaper on the Friday. Now, what's really interesting about good old William Howard Russell is he changed people's view of war. Basically, before Russell, we were aware that people died in warfare, but it didn't really, it wasn't brought home. But now, with his sort of first-hand accounts, he's talking about a battle that is just days old. And this is an eyewitness account that's then being portrayed in the media for mass consumption. This kind of showed and tainted the idea that the Crimean War was a disaster. Now, it relatively was, but a great example is he gave an eyewitness account of the charge of the Light Brigade. Now, this is one of these things where there were dozens of poems created around Light Brigade. Forward the Light Brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. And interestingly, Tennyson's one was not the first, and it wasn't necessarily the most popular at the time, but it's the one that's endured the longest. However, this sort of whole 
cottage industry about this battle and in particular this particular charge in the battle because it wasn't called the battle of the light brigade it was a charge within the battle of balaclava for the record what's interesting about it is it caught the public's imagination and the photos coming back showed the horrors of war more on that in a moment obviously to the modern eye, comparing it to photos from things like the Vietnam War or World War II. This is all very mild stuff, but you have to remember, anything previously had either been a cartoon lithograph or had been a, some sort of like painting that you would have seen in a hall and only once then, and it would have had some sort of epic sweep to it. This, you started to see the mud and you started to see the squalor of living on a front line. And his conversation about Light Brigade led people to believe that actually this was one of the biggest disasters in terms of British cavalry charges. The reality is the British heavy cavalry at the Battle of Waterloo actually sustained by percentage higher casualty rates. Also at the charge of the Light Brigade, whereas Russell reported how many people came back initially, other people came back later. So it sort of skewed the idea. It wasn't Russell trying to cheat in any way, but obviously, don't forget, the rules hadn't been written yet about what was good and bad journalism. Instead, he was kind of feeling his way around what should and shouldn't be done in the meantime. So this changed people. You start getting people being anti-war because of Russell from the 1850s onwards. The other thing is... Basically, British were being very poorly supplied. There were all kinds of supply issues. This isn't a podcast about the Crimean War. But it led to the order that basically British soldiers were cleanly shaved. But because there was so much dirty water and cholera around, they were told that so many men were nicking themselves, cutting themselves, and then falling ill. It was like, well, let's just stop shaving. We, we, we save our soldiers by just getting rid of that slightly arbitrary rule. And so by the time Russell was there taking photos... Everybody had a big bristly beard, and this was the first photographic evidence of the British army in action. And therefore, this led to, in the second half of the 1800s, this explosion across Europe and America of people feeling that, well, if I'm going to be a manly man, I need lots of facial hair. Interestingly, this continued 10 years later in America when they didn't need to follow those protocols, but because America had seen this as what the British Empire, the largest empire in the world, was doing with their soldiers, that's why the US Civil War is absolutely covered in hair everywhere, which they didn't need to do, but it makes it kind of hard to tell who's who underneath all that facial fuzz. That's, if you like, a silly element, but just sort of seeing men sitting by campsites, sitting by tents, for the record, it wasn't the very first photography, it wasn't even the first photography of a battle, but this was the first major war where photography was being used. And like I say, we've got Russell actually spreading his information out there via letter. However, the telegram had been invented. And as I said, later on, he would be outpaced. Basically, the telegram can get it back to London or wherever within hours. Russell took days. And so towards the end of his career, other war correspondents were able to beat him to the punch. Another newspaper could tell the story of X battle or X situation faster than Russell could. But Russell's came back with better prose, better language around it. Because with a telegram, it, it's just two sentences. 
and then somebody at the other end has to extrapolate a little bit. But whereas with Russell, what you got was handcrafted. But even by then, speed was important, and Russell wasn't really delivering the speed. What's interesting is, pretty much everybody points to him and says he is the world's first war correspondent. He didn't like the phrase. That wasn't something that he really recognised, which I personally find fascinating. Once we get later on into the 1800s, we've got something else that I've talked a little bit of back in the past, and that is Jack the Ripper. Now, this is a great example of journalism and where journalism is going wrong, because we don't know who killed those women. They were terrible crimes that were committed. But there's the canonical group of women, and then there are other murders that are associated with it. The police at the... Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Very fledgling time of like what a police force was and doing investigative police work, which was something that just nobody really knew how that operated at that time. I mean, literally, the police at one point took photos of the eyes of the victims because there was a theory that your eye would capture the image of the last thing you ever saw alive, so you would get the face of the killer. That's not a thing. That doesn't happen. But at a time in the 1880s where we've got steam engines and all this sort of like technology, there's still this element of superstition kicking around. But why do we call this killer or killers Jack the Ripper? It was made up 
by the press. There were the famous From Hell letters, which we don't even know are genuine. There's still huge debate over it. I think currently the feeling is these were written by journalists from less salubrious newspapers. And there was the thing about a human kidney being found in a letter and things like that. And all of this makes great journalism. None of this is morally acceptable. But this is where we get to the point. What is the point of a journalist? Is it to tell the truth? Or is it to get, nowadays we'd call it clicks, back of 50 years we'd say bums on seats, and then back in the time of Jack the Ripper, it's about sales. Can we sell out the newspaper? What is our circulation at the moment? All of them are exactly the same thing. The more newspapers I sell, the more money I make. The more clicks I have on my YouTube channel and, you know, how many subscribers and so on and so forth, the more money I make. Yes, I ask you to, and I think this is the perfect time after I talk about how cynical it is, say, hey, why don't you click and subscribe on this? Why don't you give us a review? It helps spread the word. Why am I saying that? Because, well, I'd like as many people to hear these podcasts as possible. That's genuine. And I've done my research here. I'm trying to get the facts straight. I'm not trying to be sensationalist about it. But also... You may notice that there are adverts at the beginning and in the middle. And if you really want to hang around at the end of these, and the more people who listen to them, the more very tiny amount of money we make here. Okay, now to give you an idea, the kit I'm recording this on, I actually bought it for another podcast I was doing. It cost a lot. I still haven't come even close to covering the costs of that. That's just sunk costs from like five years ago. But anyway, I enjoy doing these and I hope you enjoy listening to them. But if you could do one thing, click subscribe and don't fast forward through the ads, listen to them because that's how we get scored basically. But this has been, as I pointed out, a problem for the last 150 years for people in the media. And so journalists, particularly with something like Jack the Ripper, well, the thing is, I might know that I've written to myself a sensationalist letter. So I'm lying. But if I've got this scoop and another newspaper reports on it, they don't know that I'm lying. So they are repeating what they think is fact given out in good faith. But point blank, murder is still a hot topic. Again, going back to podcasts, true crime podcasts are the most popular genre of podcasts out there. Maybe I should do some. But the thing about true crime podcasts is they shouldn't be called true crime because it's not about, and this is how they got their parking ticket. Whoa. No. What's the topic always? Murder. Murder is a little bit sexy. It's obviously dangerous. And it's not too much. You're not going to get a true crimes podcast on like a serial rapist. That's just horrible and distasteful. And yet serial killing is fine. So do you see what I mean about that? And as I describe these crimes, some of them are just simply more tolerable than others. And that goes back to these journalists in the 1800s who just feel like what's socially acceptable and what isn't. Now, I'm going to sort of like move into the, into the 20th century now, and with the rise of Hollywood, and I've done a whole episode on that, for example, we've now got mass media, and people want to know more. They want to know about their film stars. And so you now get, well, basically in the 1920s, generally there's been improvements of printing presses as a whole. I won't get technical with this, but this is where we start seeing the rise of 
magazines as well as newspapers. You can get something glossy like Vogue magazine that's going to have full photos, not colour yet, but full photographs of like wonderful designs that women would be able to create from their own sort of sewing patterns. Guess how to sort of cut that and make their Parisian fashion in Alabama or something like that. So that's really a fun way of looking at it. But also you have all these magazines out there sort of like here's an exclusive interview with Charlie Chaplin or, you know, here's our review of the brand new Zorro movie or what have you. And this still again exists today. The problem is, going back to let's say the 1930s, these people were paid to do it. And they saw movie after movie, and they sometimes met the directors and things like that. And so, yes, maybe they were tainted, maybe they were biased, but they were being paid to do it. It's everything they had to do. Whereas, do you know what? I think some of the reviewers on YouTube are just as good. But you have to be clever about who they are. There are some people who are just doing clickbait, the modern equivalent of like, let's drop another letter from Jack the Ripper, shall we? Which will turn around and say, the new... I've got to pick a brand that everybody cares about. So let's pick a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie or something like that and say, oh, the opening numbers weren't as high as they should be. This is the end of the franchise because that's going to get clicks. Whereas turning around going, it was in rough parameters. And if you compare it to the previous movie, it was doing, you know, very average business. There's no story there. Everything is fine, doesn't sell which is why fundamentally on the news, it's always bad news. Turning around and say, couple in their 50s from Norwich had a lovely cream tea. That probably happened yesterday, but nobody cares. I want to know about famine, war. I want to know about climate change. I want to know about economic instability. I want to know about political unrest. This stuff, it's like, you better listen to this. You better watch this because this could affect you. So all of this is linked to journalists and this, like I say, this tension of are we telling the truth or are we just trying to get clicks? And I find that just so, so interesting. Part of this is various things out there, various institutions have obviously over the years cottoned on to this. So going back to war correspondence, William Russell, he had to go and basically make his own way to the Crimea. And he's had to, in essence, barge his way into various staging posts and camps and basically talk to the people who may not necessarily, who are you, why are you here, etc. Nowadays, in the 21st century, we have embedded journalists. This is where the soldiers will literally take a journalist with them in a platoon. And basically, the journalist gets, in essence, unfettered access. But this is going to create unconscious bias. If I'm sitting there with these men going through thick and thin, even if I'm trying to find shocking revelations, I like them. I want them to live. I'm not looking to sort of like denigrate these people. Maybe on one occasion, one of them managed to drag me into a, into a small foxhole or something. And where I was previously standing, a mortar shell hit. You saved my life. I'm not going to again turn around and say, you're a terrible soldier and this war is pointless. So it's kind of clever in regards to that. So embedded journalism does on one hand give you more immediate and, you know, William Russell or William Howard Russell, I guess I should give him his full name, wasn't actually fighting with the troops. He wasn't there. He was basically standing on a hilltop looking down on what was going on. Whereas these actual press journalists, they are in the thick of it. And I think they're incredibly brave because they don't have a rifle. 
They basically have to run from cover to cover holding a camera or a microphone. That's incredibly brave. You get somebody like John Simpson, who made his entire career about going, in essence, to dangerous places. Same thing with Kate Aidy. Both these people are from the BBC, or at least used to be. After talking about the sensationalist things like the magazines, now let's talk about the truly sensationalist newspapers, the Red Tops. Now, what's interesting is in Britain, we have a surprisingly large amount of national newspapers. America is so large that, yes, you have USA Today, but the best-known newspapers in America are things like the Washington Post, emanating from the capital, the New York Post, which I've already mentioned, you know, created in 1801 in New York, the LA Times, and so on and so forth. There's, there's stuff in Chicago, there's stuff in Orlando, and so on and so forth. And some of these are consumed nationally, but some of them are basically for the region that they're in. Some of them could be local newspapers, and indeed, in the UK, there are loads of local newspapers, which are finding it very, very hard in the time of the internet. Going back again to my childhood, if I wanted to know what was on in my local movie theatre, you had to buy the Ealing Gazette, and it would give you the showtimes and things like that for this week in the ABC in Ealing Broadway. It's like, okay, now I know. And also it would tell you what the local government's up to, because there's no other way to get that information. There was no internet to check up on it. It's like, oh, there's these new regulations, or we're going to open up a new library, or what have you. I mentioned this in passing on the Dungeons and Dragons episode. They even have a reader's page, and I ended up being in the reader's page as a teenager, young teenager, which, you know, was a big deal back in the 1980s. Nowadays, they'll sure they'll happily take any letter that's willing to pay attention to them. But local press in the UK is relatively thin. However, what's interesting, on the national level, whatever your politics are, you will be able to find a newspaper. The Times is considered right-wing, but not as right-wing as The Telegraph. Then you've got, if you want left-wing, you've got The Guardian. Then there's The Independent, which you'd think would be the most independent, but that tends to be quite left-leaning too. Depending on whatever your political points of view, there are newspapers there, but then there are the red tops, things like The Sun, Mirror, Star, etc. The Sun is actually from the same parent company, News International, as The Times. If you like the posh people, the managing director of the company will read The Times, and the van driver will be reading The Sun. And The Sun has some of the best sports reporting out there. But what's interesting is when you get to, and this is the argument I have with my wife all the time, the Sunday Times, which is the Times that comes out on Sunday, has lots of different supplements. And you may remember this, and I still like to do this. This is what I did before I had kids. My wife and I, would, on a Sunday morning, we'd get up at our own leisurely time, because no children, and we'd go down to a coffee shop and we obviously get dressed and washed and all that kind of good stuff, go down to the coffee shop, grab a Sunday Times, just sit there for a couple of hours, and then exchange, oh, did you read this bit? What did you think of that story? Etc. Still exists. It's thinner, but it still has all the different supplements, and I still like looking through them. My teenage boys are now old enough that I don't have to look after them, and they can get off with their stuff, and my wife and I can reignite this lovely little ritual. But what I find interesting is, the Times doesn't seem to like, and has never seemed to like, action movies or superhero movies. And it's one of these things where, is that a fair review? To turn around and say that John Wick 4 doesn't have much characterization? Yeah, you're right. That's not why they made the film. You need to talk about the stunt work. You need to talk about the cinematography. You need to talk about the kinetic energy of the film. 
which you don't. You just went, well, you know, it's the plot's wafer thin and the characters are even thinner. Three stars. Okay, fine. Well, Pride and Prejudice, as I've said before, and Greg did a brilliant version of this. He's not obliged to do it again. But it's like Pride and Prejudice has no car chases. Or indeed, Mr. Darcy at no point does any kung fu or any headshots with various pistols. She's coming to kill you. I cannot boast of knowing more than half a dozen women in all my acquaintance that are truly accomplished. I have no doubt she will succeed. You're too proud, Mr. Darcy. I find it hard to forgive the follies and vices of others or their offences against me. Perhaps you should take your aunt's advice and practice. Bingley, I beg you will come here and shoot as many as you please. Are you well, Mr. Darcy? Quite well. So in that respect, John Wick beats Pride and Prejudice 100%. So I would always say that what you want to do is what's the point of the film and judge, did they carry that out successfully? You know, if it's a character drama, are the characters believable? If it's a stunt fest, were the stunts also believable and sort of exciting to watch? So anyway, so with the Red Tops, they really sort of strip things down and sort of like give a famous example with the Falklands War. On the one hand, you literally had the BBC reporter who was on the aircraft carrier and basically said, he's talking about the Harrier jump jets flying out and intercepting the Argentinian Air Force. And he goes, I can't tell you how many jets there are, but I counted them all out and I counted them all back again. What a beautiful way to get round understandable military censorship, but basically to say, mission accomplished, everybody's safe genius way of walking around it. However, there was the sinking of the Belgrano, the flagship of the Argentinian Navy, which is still controversial to this day. We're in full-scale war, they weren't in international waters, and they were steaming close to the Falklands, but then turned round again. At that point, it got sunk by a submarine, and most of the men on the Belgrano died. It was the single biggest loss of life in the whole war, but it absolutely stopped the rest of the Argentinian Navy from coming out and, and engaging the Royal Navy. So whatever you may think of that, the point is on the front of the sun, this was very famous, there was a picture of the Belgrano, just a stock footage picture, and written underneath it was gotcha. The sun is very jingoistic, very patriotic, but when we're talking about hundreds of men's deaths, gotcha is not appropriate, and they got into big trouble about that. And indeed, another thing, the Hillsborough disaster to do with Liverpool Football Club, Again, I'm not going to go into this, you know, each one of these things could be a whole thing in and of themselves, but the Sun very much followed the police line and called the Liverpool fans disgusting animals, whereas in reality it was police failures, and everybody who died was an innocent victim of a tragic accident, and to this day, the Sun finds it hard to sell itself in Liverpool. Now, with that in mind, I just want to quickly go on to the problem with today, and that is... The 1987 FCC Fairness Doctrine was revoked in America. Basically, the news is not big business. It might be in newspapers, but not on TV. But what they really wanted in America is this idea of like, well, if we can strip away this Fairness Doctrine, which meant if I'm going to tell you the right-wing opinion, I have to, by law, give you the left-wing opinion. So you get a balance and then you can choose. But after 1987, under Ronald Reagan, Basically, everybody was allowed to do whatever they wanted. And at the time, it didn't seem a big deal. At the time, something like Fox News or CNN basically didn't exist or were, had, were in their infancy and certainly weren't the powerhouses that they are today. 
but obviously the problem now, fast-forwarding 35 years or so, is, oh my goodness, look at what's happened now, in the sense that you now get people calling it news, and it's just people sitting there giving their opinion. But because they're wearing a suit, and because you've got the graphics that make it look like it's news, you don't realise how biased it is. The other thing, and a trick that you should always watch out for, is be careful about questions. You know, is this the end of our democracy? I haven't said it is, I'm asking the question, but clearly I'm trying to lead you to that point. Now in Britain, fortunately, we still have basically rules about even-handedness and in essence sort of like a fairness doctrine. It's not actually called that here. So you get something like the BBC, and I'm a fan of the BBC, but what I find interesting is you get left-wingers shouting at it, calling it biased towards the Tories, the right-wing, and you get Tories, the right-wing, shouting about how it's biased towards the left-wing. So I'm going to say if you've got both sides shouting at it, it's probably doing a pretty good job. Doesn't get it right all the time. But to give you an idea of where we're at with all of this, going back to News International. News International nowadays is owned by Rupert Murdoch, and it has been since the 1980s. He has been, he's an Australian, he's been a genius about making money out of newspapers, and even in the 21st century, he makes money out of things like Fox News. But there's been several things that have caused him a huge problem. There was a phone hacking scandal in Europe, particularly in Britain, about 10-15 years ago. It wasn't just News International. Other journalists as well were hacking into people's answer phone messages, their voicemails, and finding out incredibly personal details. This is illegal. This is just absolutely breaking in and suddenly finding out about affairs or health conditions and things like that, causing incredible distress to famous people or celebrities, etc., sports personalities. It caused them an innumerable amounts of distress, and they have been suing the various outlets, news outlets, for quite some time now. And to give you an idea, in 2023, after all of Fox News talking about these sort of, basically, these, these absolutely no claims whatsoever being valid about election rigging in 2020, so again, we're back into opinion rather than fact, but that got them into hot water because Dominion sued them for a total of $1.6 billion. But here's the thing, that other element, that phone hacking, by 2023, has led to an even higher payout for News International as a whole. So, journalists, while they may be searching for truth sometimes, where they're trying to bring to life the horrors of war, noble, they're not always the good guy. And with that, I'm going to leave you and say thanks very much, and another episode coming soon. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.